0: hi guys and welcome to episode 7 of the stoic performance podcast my name is matty green and on today's show we've got martin stapes stapleton he is a former royal marine and now a professional mma fighter uh, he's also a coach as well coaches mma down in rochdale um, we spoke at length about his time in the marines um, he's got a lot of experience on operations he went to northern ireland the invasion of Iraq he went to Iraq again for a second time and then out to Afghanistan as well and we then kind of get into how he got into MMA um, and how he kind of progressed throughout his career within within MMA and we could have gone on for a lot longer I guarantee you that Um, so I hope you enjoy that Um, if you like the content like feel free to subscribe to the channel and enjoy Mate, first of all, like thank you for, for coming on. Thank you for giving me giving me some time. Um
1: Mate, yeah. I, well, yeah, I wanted well. to get
0: you on because I think um you've led a very interesting life. Um from what I've seen, you know, you've been in the core, but you've also gone on to become, you know, an elite level MMA fighter. Um you've won won championships, world championships, and now you're kind of transitioning, still fighting, but starting to transition into into coaching as well which obviously i see quite a lot of on uh on social media um we have a mutual friend in michael wheatman and i know he's been yeah yeah recently Softball. as well so um i want to get into all that kind of later on but first up kind of go back to the beginning of when and, and why you wanted to join
1: the core if you will uh, so Joining joining the core for me, mate. By the way, thank you for that for that intro, there, mate. Uh, <laughs> knocking my socks off there, but. Uh, softer, yeah. <laughs> joining the core for me, it it was, uh, it was kind of. I wasn't one of them guys that were like always wanted to join the core, as, as you know. You meet blokes in the core that like always wanted to join from the from the minute they were ten years old or whatever. Yeah, it was never like that for me. It was more. The fact that all throughout school i had absolutely no interest whatsoever in, in school work and then you know as you get like year 10 year 11 you're getting towards your gcse's and stuff that they like trying to motivate you telling you about all these jobs you'll be able to get if you do this subject and that subject and you'll be able to do this job and that job and i was looking at all them jobs and thinking that sounds like hell to me you know mm-hmm. even at that young of an age Sitting in an office or doing a nine to five, it just sounded like hell. I just thought there's no way I'm spending the rest of my life doing that shit. Um, So I never really paid any interest in in school. I didn't really, I didn't do one piece of homework the whole time I was at school, (laughs) not one. I didn't even take a school bag most days. I, I (laughs) and I just turned up to class. Uh, I always felt that I wanted to do something different with my life. You know, just something, not nothing special, just something different, something where I had a bit more control over what I do and, and a bit more adventure in it uh, yeah. and pe- you know people think joining the military you don't have control over what you do as in they think it's all you're getting orders barked at you and stuff but I just had a totally different opinion of it I just thought that it was a place where you've got a lot of control over your life in the fact that you get to volunteer to go on adventures all the time uh, with your mates so it, that, that's what endeared me to it and then uh, one of my best friends Matty Williams he like, as we were leaving school, I, I was starting to get keen on maybe joining the army or something. And Matty was like, nah, you can't join the army. Look at these guys. And he showed me some, like, recruiting videos of the Royal Marines. And he was like, this is the army on steroids. And I was like, yeah, I'm joining that shit. <laughs> so uh, that, 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 that's what it was, you know. Yeah. So were you straight out of school? Uh, about, nine, about a year later. Yeah. yeah 17, yeah.
0: Yeah, same for me. I had the same kind of like I never did any cadets, never did any anything like that. Um it wasn't until my cousin, my cousin was like, he's pretty much my brother, you know what I mean? We're that that close. And he's a year above me. So he he was he was kind of coming towards the end of his school and finding out about stuff like this before I even knew what, what it was. Um and he said, Yeah, I'm gonna join the Marines. And I was like, right, well, I will too then. And then that was it. Um we went down, did our PRMC together um both past that and then funny thing he ended up getting we had to carry his mum's uh outdoor garden swings you know these kind of big wooden swings they'd moved Dad. house they'd moved house and we had to carry it like it was only about probably about a mile but he ended up getting a double hernia from it and it, he never joined the car after it never no joined, way. he got a double hernia <laughs> 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 so like Weesh. we both had our, <laughs> we both had our start date for the same day uh, 2002 and um, I ended up going down alone and he never he never kind of made it he never, never joined it's, up it's
1: pretty crazy you should say that uh, you don't know a guy called Wayne Shaler do you never met Wayne, Wayne Shaler Wayne Shaler he's a, he's a driver he's in the driver's branch he's sat major now no, well, me and him were like best friends growing up we lived about 500 meters from each other's houses we were together all the time we got our birthday on the same day. birthdays the same day for God's sake right. we applied at the same time we end up on the same prMC together passed that end up in the same recruit troop seven nine seven troop both passed out together and then both went to ball two commando together as our first draft so it was it was it was very cool for me to have like a, a, a such a close friend with me on the course as well is because you know, we we were from quite a rough and ready background from Rochdale, you know, mm. and w- when you get down there, especially as a young lad, you're you kind of, it's a little bit of an ego thing. You know, when you get down to Rome Royal Marines basically training, there's 60 other young lads your kind of age from different towns, different backgrounds, and everyone's trying to prove that they're the they're the bollocks or whatever, and uh, yeah. it was just good to have a friend with me who was from the same background as me. We kind of bounced off each other a little bit and give each other confidence, so... You
0: know, it's good. That's class. I mean, I was worried because I I didn't have that. Um I, I was I was meant to have that. Like he was like, you know, someone I looked up to, um almost like a, a bigger brother for me. And then that kind of got taken away and I was like, shit, what's what's this gonna be like? Um I did have hair back then and then they shaved it off when I got down. Funny old <laughs> Um and I was just like, what the fuck's going on? Um but the lad who was in my bed space next to me, he ended up becoming my bezioppo and like kind of still is to this day. Um, yeah, it
1: goes like that sometimes, right?
0: Yeah, mental, absolutely crazy. So obviously you passed out of training. I was in training when the invasion happened. I remember walking down into the galley and it was on the, on the TV, on the news screens, on the TV in the galley.
1: Mm.
0: Um, so you passed well, As in, As in, is, is that
1: what you mean when we actually went into Iraq?
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the the training team they were threaders because they wanted oh, to be. Right. Yeah. Um, but obviously, so you were a part of that invasion. We were you with four two.
1: Yeah, I was in M Company at the time. Yeah. Right. So as a young marine, yeah. how how was that? Fucking exciting, man! It was just yeah. the adventure of a lifetime, wasn't it? I mean, I just I just joined up and you. When you you know what it's like when you're joining up, you read all the glossy magazines and you see all the like the promotional videos they send you and it's all war fighting stuff and yeah. That's what you join up for, right? You know, you you you're hyped for that sort of stuff, that's exactly why you join up. But then when you know, when you do join up you, you start thinking, Well, when's the last war? When's the next war? There's probably never gonna be a war. Or I might get a peacekeeping duties or whatever. And then when that came up it was like, Whoa you know, we've only just joined and this is the real thing. But it was, for me, I loved it, man. It, at that point in my life. Now, when, when I say stuff like that, what I want people to realise is that I don't mean it in like um, a political sense or a mm. war-mongering sense or anything like that. Obviously, war is not good for anybody. But as a young Marine, having the opportunity to go out there with all my mates doing the job that I've trained to do, and let's be honest, with a lot of ego on my shoulders because that's what you are. You, you train and you're told that you're the best of the best, and this, that, and the other, you want to prove that you're the best of the best, that you want to get your hands dirty. For me, it was the the adventure of a lifetime. I think, I genuinely, genuinely think that OpTelic won the first invasion of Iraq. Without that, I don't know if I'd be the same person I am today. I think that, that, that's, that like, year period of my life is something that I think about all the time. I have memories from it all the time, lessons that I learned all the time. I don't think I'd be the same person without that.
0: Yeah, so, um, I mean, I joined 40 when the lads, um, I, I was on rear party, actually, while the lads were on leave from, uh, from Telic 1. Right. Um, so then I joined Delta Company when they all came back. And obviously these, like, I was still 17 at the time, and these lads had yeah. come back from war, and I was just like, I'll tell you, yeah. the, very, the very first night they rocked up, they came back uh, from leave. I, was in, I remember I was in my four-man pit, four-man, in the 4 grot. I was in my pit, and I could hear them all coming in, you know, and like shouting, and just they're all absolutely tanked up. Bullshit. I was like, what's going on here? And this South African, <laughs> this South African lad came into the grot, naked, fully naked. Obviously. And I'm, like, I'm in the corner, and I'm like looking at him, and he's got these two mugs. So he's got like two of these mugs, and he looks at me, and he just lets out this scream like ah, and then smashes both cups on his head, and then he walks out the rock. <laughs> and I was like, "What have I just joined? What? <laughs> what is
1: going on?" Quality, but um, that but that, was... that's the, that's the culture. That's the, and it should be the culture, you know. That yeah, for an elite fighting force like the Royal Marines, it shouldn't be PC, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be for everybody. It should be a, a, a group of elite men that, that act like alpha males that are still, you know, they're still humble and they've got humility and all them, them, the commando spirit and embodying all them things about trying to help people. But at the same time, you're, you're being asked to do tasks that are way outside of the normal boundaries of life. So you, you, you should be a person that's able to live outside them boundaries of life. Do you get what I mean? It's been
0: able to, to flick that switch from one to the other.
1: Yeah, yeah. Seamlessly as well. Seamlessly, yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a start. I, mean, I, do, I do think they've got better at that nowadays with like um, the decompression training they do with, with lads and stuff. You know, asking lads to come back from a war zone and, and like, like you say, when it was Iraq, tell it 1, telic 4, you were on Telic 4 as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Right, uh, yeah, you know, I was on that with 40 Commandos as well. Um, Coming back from them sort of trips and then just because you one minute you're living your life on on a knife edge and like every second of your life. Matter. I try and explain this to people. It's like every decision you make matters at that point. Even like down to if you're gonna have a little sip of water out of your out of your black bomber because you're on patrol and it you know you take a knee and you go down in a position and your choice whether you make a little drink of water or not means something. Because if you don't take that drink of water, you might not get a chance for another couple of hours and you might go down. But yeah. if you do take that drink of water, you might have to take your eyes off your act for a minute while you're taking it. Mm-hmm. So every little second, even though they're micro seconds and micro decisions, they make such, they're so important. Yeah. And then you come home and you've gone from all that pressure, all that important decision-making constantly, you know, you're on edge non-stop. You come home and they just go, good effort, lads, you've got three months off. And then you go to three months where nothing matters because you've got loads of money in the bank that you've saved up. You're not working, you're not on ops, you're just on leave. And your decisions making, the decisions that you make daily, they just don't have the same kind of ramifications. And and I think it's hard for people to to transition from that war zone to, to back to normal, you know, normal day to day living in the UK. Uh, but I do think they've got a lot better better at that now with the decompression stuff they do from Afghanistan and, and, and stuff like that. We've learned that I think the British military from like 2003 to 2015, it, it improved so much on, on on everything from tactics, techniques and procedures, from equipment all the way up to stuff like decompression.
0: Yeah, definitely. Because the equipment thing was a massive issue, wasn't it? Like, It made national news constantly. Tell it one,
1: there's there's a video, it's on my Instagram of me on, on the top of um someone firing a firing a fifty cal. And I've actually got a box of the ammo in my garage now. Not not the ammo by the way, so don't I don't want the police coming knocking. <laughs> it's, it's the ammo box, right? It's the box, not the ammo. Yeah. But in the fifty cal pamphlet, it actually said, word for word, you cannot use Belgian ammunition with this with this machine gun. It doesn't work, it's it's not high enough grade quality and all that. Guess what? I'm all they gave us in Iraq. Belgian <laughs> ammunition, mate. And we're like, hey, is this some sort of joke? But I think the problem was with the equipment is, y- you've got to think about it. Before TELIC won, it was the Falklands was the last time we had a real sustained campaign of war. Yeah. And even that was a short campaign. It was very, very intense, but it was very short compared to... So the equipment failings and stuff that we had back in them days didn't didn't really show through until... Tell it, tell it one again in you know, Iraq and I think that that's when the military like headsheds, got a grip of it and were like we need to sort the lads out because they're strang- they're dangling you
0: know? yeah I, I think they've got to a point where they realize that we need to constantly adapt and evolve And mm. like we're asking the lads to do on the ground we need to do that and make sure they're prepped and ready and the-
1: yeah what well, resource you need resource to do you know, to, to carry out tasks, it's not just about personnel and skills, it's also about resource.
0: How did you find the, uh, the difference in tours between TELIC 1 and TELIC 4? Obviously the two were completely different in scope of, you know, operation, but um, you were, you know, a lot wiser, you know, even though one year older, maybe, what, 18 months, if that? You you through TELIC 1, you'd gone through an yeah. invasion, you've, you know, gone from a young lad Probably still a teenager, maybe early 20s, seeing so much stuff through, through Tell It One, and now you're kind of like, you know, almost a little bit of a sweat almost for for the yeah, last four
1: well, was. Well, before Tell It One, I actually did Northern Ireland with 4 uh, right. 2. I did the the tour across McGlen. So it was pretty cool because I went from a like, peacekeeping tour in Northern Ireland and to then to the first invasion of any country that the British military have done in decades. Yeah. And then to the peacekeeping tour afterwards. So I, I did feel, like you said, I did feel like a, I had a bit of experience under my belt. And, and there was obviously young Marines coming through that were in our troop and our section and stuff. And I felt like I had something that I could, you know, a bit of value that I could add to them and a little a little, tiny bit of leadership skills or a little bit of leadership knowledge, should I say. Uh, hmm. The difference between them two toes, particularly, it well, <laughs> one was unknown. There was no, nobody knew what was going to happen. Like, for instance, when we flew out there, we still didn't know what was going to happen. We flew out to Kuwait and nobody had a clue. If, if Was there going to be a war? Was there not? Was this just a show of force? Was it not? And we got there and there was nothing there in the desert. We were just dropped in the desert and it was like, Right, lads, build some tents. And we're like, out of what? And then they were like, oh, God Sam. knows what. <laughs> yeah, so like, they started having stuff airdropped dropped into us, like boards and stuff. We started putting tents up. And then it was like, who's feeding us? And there was no food. So for like three weeks, we were on not, not a full MRE, not one full MRE, just one MRE meal between two for your, for your dinner and a boiled egg each for, like, for your breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and that was all you were getting. And that was for like three weeks. Lads were, when I say starving, the lads were actually starving. You're talking maybe 600 calories a day yeah. in the middle of a desert when I you're deep. probably burning 3,000. Um, and then it started to build up, obviously, they started to issue us desert kit and we were like, oh shit, we're actually going in now. And then they started issuing ammo and then they started building firing ranges at the at the camp in Kuwait while we were waiting And This happened over like maybe a six-week period. It went from middle of the desert with nothing, not even any food. So six weeks later, we've got ranges up, we're doing section attacks. It. we're doing actual, you know, um, walkthrough talkthroughs of what we're going to do and ta- loads of tactical training. And then, obviously, the invasion was was insane because like the night before, we were all laid out in our sticks, ready to fly in and still nobody knew what was going to happen. Was it going to be massive? Was it going to be a big kickoff? Was, was it going to be uh, resistance on the way in. There was not, no one knew anything, but obviously when when we came back from that and went to Telic 4, I think they had much more of a grip of things what, what was going on. It was considered more of a peacekeeping off, although there was still quite a lot of um, danger. There was a lot of danger out there in that time, wasn't there? You know, um, especially in places like Alamara and um, mm-hmm. places like that. Uh, I think the other thing that was... A big difference between the two tours was the living standards. As in, like, on, on Telic 1, it was literally rations, 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 sleeping in a shell scrape under your poncho. Um, and you're either on Century or you're on Ops, you know. But at least on Telic 4, we got to stay at Basra Palace or was it Shiba Log? Yeah, I think I stayed at Shiber Log Base for a bit. Stayed at Basra Palace for a bit. You actually had some form of accommodation. It wasn't comfortable by any means, but you had some form of accommodation. When you weren't on ops, you had some form of like a galley to go and have a proper a normal meal, and um, you had satellite phones so you could ring home and stuff. So it was a, it was a big difference in like the living standards, and it it did give you a tiny bit of normality as as far as living with six hundred marines can be normal. You
0: know? yeah. no, definitely. Um, that's all for me. Was my my first one, and um, managed to get. You know, going back to what you say, not glorifying it, but doing my job of getting some rounds down um, yeah. in Baghdad. Um, yeah, right, yeah. On route Irish. Um, wasn't many rounds, but it was, you know, enough. It was yeah, a bit of a contact, but that's the only kind of thing I had, um, which was really kinetic. The rest, obviously, was just, you know, um, the, the kind of peacekeeping type stuff we did, but... The difference from that to Afghanistan was unbelievable. Night
1: and day. Yeah, night and day again. That, it totally, the, the intensity of Afghanistan just totally unmatched. I mean, there was times in Iraq, like during the Shia uprising, when well, we, we were particularly involved in it. I think it was the Black Watch and stuff like that. They had pretty pretty rough, rough time out there, and they were involved in a lot of contacts out there. But still, yeah. the intensity of the contacts and the threat of IEDs and the ingenuity of the IEDs that, that, that came out in Afghanistan the intensity was just a different level from anything the, the British military had encountered before, I think. Yeah. Hey, thank God that we had Iraq as a little bit of a stepping stone to, to, you know, to, to let us know we need to get our shit together here, because I think without TELIC 1, TELIC 4, the ops that came during the, the Iraq tours, I think without them we'd have been in a lot more trouble in Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, you're definitely right. Um, I did Herrick 9 with 4-2, uh, with Lima Company. Um what you went after did you go after that? did you go to one tour
1: or two, two of Afghanistan? One saw with yeah, one saw, I think it i I don't know what Herrick it was to be honest. It um it, it, I, I wasn't on a Heric, I was with SFSG at the time, so it was okay. we had a different hot name. I yeah. think it would have been about the time of it might have been Herrick ten or eleven sort of time.
0: Um I was in Lima Company, I spoke about this the other day on the podcast, when I got back from, um, we got back from Ganners, and then they kind of like just changed everything. And I'd gone from being in Lima Company to they put me into J Company um, and just swapped me for the same, billet. Really, like I was a PW, they swapped me for the same same thing. And I was like, what what's the point in this? Um, and then we started gearing up for, might have been, Herrick 12 or 14, I can't remember which one it was, the next we started gearing up for, um, and then it was like, right, you're off to uh, CTC. See you later. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, threaders. But, um, yeah, the tour, what kind of stuff were you doing in Afghan? Um, So the the,
1: the stuff that we did out there was like... um, in comparison to like the, the, the lads who were working, so if you, the lads who were working in FOBS, obviously, you did you go? You must be working out of FOBS.
0: We were them, lucky right? as Lima Company, we did strike ops, so we would
1: ah, yeah.
0: so we in, land awesome. on, and then
1: yeah, get out. well, we, yeah, very similar then. So, um, obviously, the lads are working in for those that are listening that don't know, the lads that are working in FOBS for an operator base they, they have one area and they patrol that area constantly, and they're trying to. Like get the, the enemy out of that area secure the local population and stuff like that, very, very I think, for me, that was the most dangerous job in Afghanistan, the lads working out of fobs, they had it bad, because mm-hmm. every single day they're getting up and they're patrolling the same areas, they've got the enemy watching them 24-7, every footstep they take the enemy's watching them, trying to work out how they can kill them, where they can put IEDs, how they can ambush, ambush them stuff like that, and for them lads, it's, it's not a very glamorous job either because they they are literally they were literally fighting for their lives every Indeed. single day weren't they? Yeah. Uh, and and some of it might not have been that exciting for them because a lot of the time they wouldn't have been there to see the enemy. And a lot of the time the enemy was a, an, an IED buried under the ground. Um so that for me they had the hardest tours out of everyone. I, I didn't do a FOB tour I with, with SMSG. It was a tour where more more like what you were saying, more like a strike off so tour where we were just Different, operate, different areas all the time, all over Helmand province, uh, going into areas for like maybe three or four days at a time or maybe 24 hours, depending on what sort of resistance we were, we were meeting there. Uh, and then sometimes we'd pull out and go back to the camp for a couple of days, resort our kit and go back out. Other times we'd stay out in the desert for like a month at a time. And it was brilliant because we'd be staying out in the middle of the desert, then we'd go on to do a strike up a couple of days and then we'd come back out and we'd set up an LUP in the desert for a few more days then we'd go back out and it felt like a proper it felt like what a proper commando war should be you know for all marine commandos that's what it should be you know go out there do your bit go back hide in the desert sneaky beak. in no all can see you go back out do another op sneaky beak. But, and again because of the unit I was in the, the, the equipment we had and the assets we had I, I before I joined that unit and I, and I was like Exposed to them assets and that sort of equipment. I've never seen them sort of assets. I didn't know the British military were using the sort of assets we were allowed to use. And I didn't realise that sort of that level of equipment was still readily available. And it was a big eye opener for me and it was a very, very good experience. I felt very fortunate to be on that tour.
0: Yeah, I agree. My, my tour sounds pretty much exactly the same. Um, that's exactly what we were doing. Like you say, going out, coming back in again. Um, and that's what I felt was. Definitely the pinnacle of my career. Um, I, did, yeah. I, did, I did ten years, um, and that was definitely the pinnacle. Um, but coming back, and I spoke to someone the other day about uh, transitioning from being, you know, doing soldier, being a soldier, being that complete, you know, doing those tasks, to then having to come back and then play at soldiers. Um, yeah. For me, I really
1: couldn't it. I, I just yeah. could adapt. Well, so so for me, I, I felt like and you you might know what I'm saying is like I felt like i had done that with Iraq and not. So I went when I first joined. I had Northern Ireland, then I had Iraq, then I had Iraq again, then I had Norway, and even in Norway, you're actually out doing. Even though you're not, it's not an operation. You're out in the Arctic. You're doing Arctic warfare. Like, if you don't put square your shit away, you'll probably freeze to death at night. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So even, even in them situations, I felt like I was actually soldiering for about the first four years of my career, five years. I felt like I was non-stop, you know, soldiering. And then obviously when, when that kind of came to a, a close and I went back to port, or, or 40 Commando, started going on normal exercises on dark or like you say, you start feeling like you're playing soldier again. I was like, fucking hell! listen to me. It, not because it was bad; it was just because when you're comparing it to what you've already done. And then when I went to Afghanistan, and it was just a whole other level of intensity and level of professionalism and stuff. Coming back from there, and then going back to like you say, playing soldier. So because I was at SFSG, I, we we were still doing taskings that were very exciting. We were doing a lot of exciting stuff, and you know there, there was always that buzz about the unit. So this is coming up. That's coming up. Oh, it's, you know, it was still exciting, but but still, it did feel like you were playing soldiers a bit, and Afghanistan was closing down and stuff. And that for me, that was the time where I thought, like, right, I've done everything. I I joined to do. I've done, in fact, I've done more than I joined to do. I've got every experience that I have that I wanted. And that was when it was time to um close the curtains.
0: That was so. At what point? Because you you were your PTI, weren't you? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, at what point did you go and do your PTI class? I think, actually, I've seen pictures. Were you on with, with Greg Andrews, with Greg? Yeah, yeah,
1: me, Greg, and Lordy, yeah. Yeah,
0: so I was in, Delta company with Greg when he first joined
1: cracking. Two water block. Yeah.
0: Um, so, where does it all tie in where, with MMA, kind of getting on, going through, what point did you kind of pick MMA up and, and start? Because you turned pro in, like, what, 2007, was it, or something? Seven
1: yeah. 2007,
0: yeah. So, at what point did you kind of like, because really back then, it was still relatively new, wasn't it? MMA. I I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember watching MMA from pretty, I say pretty, probably the early 2000s. I started watching it, um, but I didn't know anywhere to, to do it. I, was a bo- I boxed originally. Um, where did you kind of get into MMA? At what point?
1: Well I actually got into it in the core. with and I don't, do you know si Stroud Strode no. and yeah I know of him yeah. he's, he's a DL now monkey yeah. bit yeah is Top he low.
0: with Kev Donnelly
1: Yeah 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 um so me and him actually it was him that introduced it to me he was he had some DVDs of UFC 1 and I, we we're on a ship. I think we're on Galahad, and we were either coming back from Senegal or Norway. I can't even remember where we were coming back from. I just remember that we were on a long trip back from uh, back from abroad on on a a ship for weeks on end. And um, me and him just started drilling. We were watching the UFC One DVDs, UFC Two. We just started drilling on the on like underneath on the flight underneath the flight network. The gym was on it. Did you ever go on Galahad? No, no, mate. What the gym was. a, a shake on you know like a, a box container <laughs> it was literally like
0: yeah
1: maybe 10 foot 8 foot wide by about 20 foot long and that was the gym and obviously being a steel container it stinks all the sweat yeah, straps pissed. in there and we set up a couple of mats in there we just used to drill and uh, do a bit of rolling and it's funny you should ask this question after the last question because I think that that was one of the things that really drove me into MMA was the fact that we'd done Northern Ireland, Iraq, Iraq again, Senegal, Norway—all that real-time stuff where you feel like you're actually living the life. And then we—we we were on the way back. I started to learn MMA, and that's when all the like the exercise at Forty Commando started. You know, doing Boston, all these crap uh, exercises. Yeah. yeah, and that was. And at that point, <laughs> I was like, "Well, I'm not really." I, yeah, I know. Every, I understand. Everyone's got to keep their skills up, and we've got to keep the soldiering level going, and all that. But it didn't feel real for me anymore because I'd already done real, I knew what real was and I knew what real wasn't. Mm-hmm. So getting into MMA would give me another slice of reality, because you know MMA is' it's, you know obviously it's, it's, there's still rules and stuff and all that, and it's very safe compared to you know combat situation in Afghanistan or something. But it is still a real contest. You are really fighting, and there's a real chance that you're going to get destroyed or. Strangled, you know. Yeah. So I think it gave me that that slice of reality that, that, I, that I felt like uh, I'd lost after coming back from the tours.
0: Um, and you obviously turned pro whilst using in the car. Um, yeah. How did that kind of come about? Did you get any any time off to kind of do it, or was it all off like your own back and
1: officially or unofficially? <laughs> Let's go both <laughs> right, so unofficially unofficially when I first turned pro and I started fighting i oh or I', I or sorry officially should I, say, I kept it as quiet as I could at the time uh obviously all the boys all the lads knew but I didn't want any of the hierarchy to know because it wasn't all I'd heard of lads was oh if the hierarchy find out you're doing that they'll they'll, they'll tell you to stop if you get injured and you can't you can't come on exercise and blah blah blah. So I kept it pretty quiet on that side of things, and then when I joined the PT staff, I passed my PTI course. I joined the PT staff. I got the opportunity to go on the Ultimate Fighter, yeah, and and obviously that that was massive for me personally, and I needed to. Well, it was you go and living in Las Vegas for 12 weeks, so you yeah you have to go through the official routes, you know. So I went through the official routes, and there was a, a director of training at the time. I think he must have been like. A, a, Lieutenant-Colonel or something. I won't say his name, but he wasn't very well liked. Uh, and he, he was like, he was like, putting a stop to it. no, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, it's not a recognised course for, you cannot, you, blah, blah, blah. But then, my Sergeant Major at the time got involved, and he was like, fucking hell, shave off. This is one of our blokes, we're fighting men. And this is one of our blokes, travelling the world to, to fight and represent the Royal Marines. He's fucking yeah. doing it. And he, um, between the sergeant major, and then I had um, uh, the like the um, the officer in charge of the PTIs there was a guy called Sean Lurwell as well, and and them two were just like, and he was a hoofing bloke. He was like a captain at the time, and they, and they put their light, like their careers at risk for me because they were like, listen, just fucking go. We'll cover your tracks, and while you're there, we'll fight your case. But once you're gone, you're gone. And So what if they find out? We'll get a bollocking when you get back. So yeah. what? So I, I just went, and then luckily for me was that them two fought my case so well that, um, oh God, I can't remember his name now, um, oh, one of the other colonels got involved, huge bloke, um, oh, I can't remember if, uh, his name, come- I, I actually met him recently at a pass out parade um, about a year ago, hoofing block. sorry. Sir, if I, can't find you, if I can't recall your name, but um, he got involved then, and he, he was like, this lad, he, he had the same thing, he's like, this lad's good fighting, and he's a Marine, that's what we do, let's let him do it, and then I had the top cover then, so it was, it was good then, you know.
0: That's awesome, um, you touched on saying, obviously MMA is not a recognised core sport, do you think yeah. it could ever be?
1: it's a hard question that and I like to look at these things from both angles right so the the pro, the pro MMA fighter in me who loves MMA and coaches MMA and wants this sport to grow and all that says yes it should be and I want it to be let's do it let's have Royal Marines training MMA and progressing and blah 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 the bootneck in me says no I like the way that I did it and I like the way that because I found that the way I did it I had to adapt and be a bit, you know, be a bit ingenuity about it, a bit of, a, you know, a bit of sneaky-beaky about it and all that because, and I still believe this, when you're a Royal Marine, you should be a Royal Marine first and foremost. I, you, you have, we, we see all these other regiments in the military where, like, they, they, they join the football team when they get Three years off to play football, yeah. yeah. And as boot necks, we look down on them. We we're like fucking part time soldier What's so up with you? Do you know what I mean? We're we're boot necks. We're Royal Marines. We we're soldiers. Anything else is just a, a part. You know, a pastime. And we look down on them guys that do that. And rightly so, mate, because I do think that that's one of the thing that makes the Royal Marines so good is that we are full time soldiers, and that that is our 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 backbone relies upon that, and everything we're doing our pastime is upon us. So. I'm 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 kind of laid in the middle of it. I think what they've done with the Royal Marines BJJ is is absolutely phenomenal because BJJ is something that lads can be training every single MMA and BJJ are two different things, you know. To be a pro MMA fighter or even an amateur MMA fighter these days, you've got to be committed like it's a full time job. You can't be an amateur MMA fighter these days if you're going to train twice a week, three times a week. I've got amateurs that are training three times a day and they're training like pros and and, and that's what it takes to be an MMA fighter. I don't think bootnecks or Royal Marines are going to have, most of them are going to have that time to commit to that while still being a soldier. But BJJ is a different thing. For one, you're not going to get injured the same as you would in MMA. MMA takes on, training MMA properly takes a hell of a lot out of your body, all the bangs and the knocks you get. BJJ, while it still does take a lot out of your body, and it's still obviously the physical fitness of it and the physical conditioning you get out of it seconds and on, you don't pick up the same knocks and injuries that you do in MMA. So I think that that is a more kind of specific thing for for the military or for Royal Marines rather than MMA. Also, I think that uh, BJJ... So MMA is a sport at the end of the day, and when you're training MMA like it or lump it, you you have to train in a way that takes the rules into consideration. So strategically and tactically, you know what the rules are. and and, And you have to play to the rules in certain aspects. In BJJ, you've got kind of two degrees. You've got the guys who focus on sport, BJJ, and they like to play funny guards and all that. And that's cool. That's good. But you've also got BJJ that can be taught specifically for fighting, for MMA or for combat. And that's what I, that's the BJJ that I love. That's what I believe is the truest form of BJJ. And that translates to what lads do in the court and what lads need on operations more than anything, in my opinion. Yeah. So for, for, for me, I think the best thing that the Royal Marines have done in the last few years is put so much effort and energy into getting the Royal Marines BJJ up there. You've got lads training BJJ at dinner time that's excellent physical conditioning, excellent mental conditioning, mm-hmm. a great challenge for them, while they're learning a skill that is practical for their job and they're not getting injured, I don't think you can quite make the same argument for MMA in, in, um, in, in the military life, if you get what I mean yeah. and yeah. as hard as that is for me to say that as, an, as a pro MMA fighter and as a coach the boot neck in me has to, has to be honest and say that I think BJJ should be a core sport. It is now, and it should be pushed the way it is. And I think every bootneck should be doing BJJ. MMA, like I said earlier about the Royal Marines, is not for everybody, nor should it be. Um, and I think it's a double-edged sword within the within military lads. Sorry, that I banged on a little bit there, didn't I? But no, no,
0: I didn't. <laughs> it's, it's um, it's a great answer, mate. It's 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 hard to answer as well, obviously. Yeah. It's. The idea of it, I think, would be pretty cool, but the is yes. of it, like you say, soldiers first, that type of thing, and to, to be able to train to the level you need to be at to make sure you're ready yeah. in all aspects.
1: And, and so- then also also is the fact that the time in, in, in MMA when lads usually pick up the most injuries is when they're beginners, because <laughs> when you put the MMA gloves on, your gum shield and your shin pads on, and you're in a cage and you're sparring and it's full on, Until people learn, like learning how to spar is an art in itself, as in learning how to spar and not injure your training partners and just put enough enough in that it's making the intensity realistic, but not putting too much in that you're going to injure yourself and injure your partner. That can take a long time to learn. And if lads in the core are are starting out as a beginner, it might take them three or four years to learn how to spar properly and, and, and all that. And that's the time that they're going to probably pick up most of their injuries. Unless they're training at a really good gym um but that's the time when they're gonna pick up most of their injuries, and that's also the time that they need to be most injury free for what they're doing in the core so it's a it's a very hard tight rope to kind of balance along um yeah
0: i was um I was first introduced to BJJ when I went out to America in two thousand and seven I think it was like proper hands on like I knew what the u f c was and all, like by the end, but it was like we went for an exchange. I was up at F- FPG at the time, and we did an exchange with like the American version of what we were doing. Uh, oh yeah, they were all civilians. They were all ex-military, um, but they showed us for a full. I think it was like three or four full days of BJJ, and I was like, "This is amazing!" Like, yeah. I-, I couldn't get over how good it was. And then when I come back, I couldn't find anywhere to go. I couldn't find anywhere. To, to, to go, but to also do it consistently because I kept bouncing about the units and you know I'd never get a chance to settle. Um, yeah. I feel this when before, I got to, when I was at Limston, I went down to the Lions Den with Kev. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Dave, Dave Matthews, right?
0: Yeah, Dave Matthews. So I was We're going, able. and it wasn't for a long time. i probably like, you know, a month or two months, um, just more for the training. But I, again, I loved it absolutely loved it. Um, And I've been a big fan of MMA for for a long time. So um, where do you kind of see, I spoke to someone uh, the other day, a strength and conditioning coach, um, and I was saying how I believe MMA, um, the, the future of it, and how it's going to go in terms of, you're seeing much more now. Obviously, what we're watching in the UFC, Bellator, you're seeing many more guys who are complete all us. And they've got, like, a complete balance of, of – or they're starting to get a balance of wrestling, of grappling, of, of striking. And it's not, you're not so much a generalist, generalist now. You're not so much like, a, oh, he's just a striker and he can do a little bit of BJJ. Where do you think MMA is going um in terms of like training but also how you kind of put it all together.
1: So let let's go back a bit, right? So when UFC came back came out originally or MMA came out, should I say well it was the UFC when it first came out, but you know now it's evolved into MMA. Um it was a sport where it was one martial art pitted against another, so it was judo against kickboxing, it was boxing against jiu jitsu, wrestling against taekwondo, whatever. As the sport developed, people then realized that you needed an all re- you needed to know a bit of everything, right? Um, and, and people took that on, and you had guys like Frank Shamrock, that was like maybe the first, well, I'd say the first true mixed martial artist where he was probably. A dec- maybe not world class in everything but he was he was he was exceptionally good at everything no, he, was, you know, he was very good at everything he could grapple really. he could grapple with anyone in the world he could strike with most people in the world he could wrestle with most people in the world um, and then I think as time's gone on people have took that and they've realised that like even in them days people were like and it goes back to what I was saying about BJJ is people were like I need to learn BJJ to be good at MMA, and yeah, that's true. You need to learn BJJ, but you don't need to learn sport BJJ and playing these different things. That you need to learn true fight BJJ. You know how to fight, and then I think as time has developed, it's got to the point where like to be a fighter nowadays, you've got to have a deep understanding of the fundamentals of all aspects. As in, you got to be you got to understand the fundamentals of wrestling, jujitsu. Uh, tie boxing, boxing, you've got to know the distances, the ranges, you've got to know the fundamental techniques, and if you want to call them techniques, that is, um, that you need in all the aspects. You then need to know the difference between doing them as an individual art and doing them in MMA when when the strikes evolve. And what I mean, for instance, by that is again, I'll use jiu jitsu as, as the example because it's, it's my it's my biggest love in, in MMA of martial arts. Jiu jitsu is my favorite one to train. Is that, um, there is a difference, you know, like in in jitsu you when you're wearing a gi and you've nothing to consider but but the grappling, you can you can sit there and you can play guard. And you can spend twenty minutes in guard and you know just playing with postures and pressures and moving people around. But then, what people have realised over the years is when you translate that into MMA, you've still got to have that reality mindset and that um, what's the word like where you're not going to play around and take so much time. You've got to have that intense mindset where there's going to be strikes involved and you're going to be getting elbowed in the face and stuff like that. So people then, they started off as specialists. Then they became like generalists. Then they realized that even within them general sports, there's still specific aspects that are useful and other aspects that are not. Do you get what I mean? So they went from that to like an evolved version of that. But, when you see the world champions and you see the guys that are best in the world, like your Habib or your John Jones, your Conor yeah, your Sahudo and things like that, they still, yes, they, they, they're like, they've got that general thing where they're good at everything, they're all-rounded and they've got a deep-rooted knowledge of everything, but they've all got one thing, one shiny tool in the box that stands out above everyone else. Like Habib, it's the, his ability to take you down, pin you and punch you. He does it like nobody else. He's not just an all-round fighter who's equally good in all areas. He's very good in all areas, but he's got one area that if he can drag you into that area, you are in trouble. John Jones, he's got that one area. Well, he's got two areas. He's got his wrestling and he's got that, that long reach and he's he's a fight IQ with his striking. He's got two. He's kind of got two routes where if he can drag you into one of them routes, it, you're in trouble. So, Hudo, he's, he's very similar to John Jones in the fact that he's got that one route of wrestling that if he grabs all of you, you're just in a whirlwind for the next five minutes where he's tossing you and throwing you out. He's now added this dynamic striking to that, you know, to a, to a level where, yeah, he's all-round generally good at everything, but he's got them two routes that can really mess you up. And I think that's the key. I had this conversation with one of my fighters a couple of days ago, Antonio Sheldon. Ando, Ando's like, if Andor gets on your back, he's one of the deadliest guys in the UK. You know, if he can, if he takes you down and he, if, he, if me and Andor are rolling, if he gets my back, I, I'm more fearful of him getting my back than most black belts I've ever trained with. I know if Andor gets my back, I am tra- he's got a few techniques that he does when he's got someone's back. And he's done them on me that many times that I think he's took years off my grappling career because he's so tight. I'm like, oh. But he's got that one, he's got that one route that if he can get people down that route, they're dead. He, does, you know, the, the, he could he could submit people in the top 10 in the UFC tomorrow if he can get them down and get them back. It doesn't matter. He's world-class at it, right? Yeah. And what I've been trying to say to him is th- there's other aspects of his game that he wants to... I won't say what they are because I don't want people listening. Really? <laughs> but he's got other aspects of his game that he wants to focus on more and bring up. But what I was, the point I was trying to say is, yeah, we need to do that. We need to bring them their mother levels up because as we need to, as ev- the whole circle expands, you know, the, the circle of what you're uh, kind of proficient at, we want that to expand, but we never want to lose sight of we've got that one shiny tool in the box that you can kill any man on the planet with. You know, we don't want that tool to get to the point where it's degraded, where as this area of general skills grow, that one skill comes down and it's just another one in here. As this one grows, we want to still develop this one route that's, that's deadly, if you get what I mean. It's, it's like, um, like funneling somebody into an ambush, right? You have, your, you have your killing group in the middle, then you have your cutoffs at the side, and if you don't get them in that killing group immediately, your cutoffs on the edge might fire them and try and get them and draw them back into that danger area, that killing zone, and once they're in the killing zone, bang, that, that's your deadly tool again. And that's what I'm trying to... Like think of MMA. Like, yeah, I want everyone to have an ambush set. That's that's the one kind of route that they've got to victory. But then around that ambush, we've got few auxiliary systems that we can push them back into that one. Um, if that if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, looking a lot a lot of people kind of they, they start off their like martial arts career. Let's face let's say um, either as a, a striker or a wrestler or whatnot. And then they'll kind of funnel themselves to MMA um, and they'll al- already kind of have that, all, that thing you're saying, that, that one, that killing group, that whatever it might be. If you've got someone who's a complete beginner and they've never done any form of boxing, wrestling, you know, not even played sport or whatever, um, but they've started MMA, so from the very beginning... Would you kind of develop, look at them, how they're developing and, and guide them into developing that weapon, you know, their main number, you know, main weapon, or would you kind of like just see how they progress and what do you normally do with those, those So
1: I'll, I'll describe to you what our, 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 how our programme works, right? Um, so let's say that this guy that you've just described comes to the gym, he's a tall beginner, he's never done anything before, he wants to do MMA. First of all, I need to know why he wants to do MMA. Mm-hmm. He, does he want to be a fighter? Why does he want to be a fighter? You know, If you want to be a fighter, what's the reasons behind it? Are you doing it for an Instagram post and, a, and, and look cool and a fighter page? Or are you doing it because it's something that's within you? You want to test yourself. You want to challenge yourself. You're, you're someone who loves to live on the edge. Or are you doing it because you want to be a good role model for your kids or you're trying to emulate a, a role model of your own? We need to first understand why he wants to do MMA. And then that can kind of guide us on what route to take. Because everyone's different. You know, if someone who wants to be a world champion, genuinely, everyone says they want to be a world champion. You know, saying it and being it are two different fucking things, man. Or saying it and meaning it are two different things. Not everyone's going to be it, but meaning it and saying it to it. It's the easiest thing to say is, you know, if I speak to someone, I say, why do you want to do MMA? And they go, I want to get to the UFC. I want to go all the way. I think, oh, man, that's just a pre-recorded answer. Yeah. Um, it, so you, we've got to understand why they want to do it first. And then we've got different routes to push them down. Uh, so, but first of all, we run, our, we run an MMA intro program. So in, in MMA, there's so much to learn. There's the striking aspect. There's the wrestling aspect. There's the grappling aspect. And then there's the, how do I put it all together? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on, what we do is we run a, an intro course, which runs for eight weeks, which is 24 lessons or 24 classes, and on them classes we teach the very fundamental skills that you'll need in MMA. So we'll start off at the basics, stance and footwork, then we'll start off, then we'll move on to like movement in that footwork, then we'll move, you know, head movement, uh, parries, straight shots, hook shots, low kicks, and so we'll bring everything in gradually. Same with the grass, grappling aspect, we'll bring in sh- shrimps, bridging, sprawling, then we'll, we'll build them through a fundamental programme all the, the fundamental and I, was, I almost said basic, then, but they're not basic skills, they're important skills. Uh, Matt Thornton, who's the, the head of SBG worldwide, he says, He says, fundamentals are not what's most basic, they're what's most important, and that's what yeah. I believe as well. That's fundamentals big. are not, it's very easy to say the basics, they're not basics, they're important. Uh, so, that's what the fundamentals So, we, we show them all the fundamentals of that. Now, when they've come through that they will have an idea of where they want to go because they'll have, they'll have been introduced to a little bit of sparring and stuff like that. So the reason why they joined at the start of that eight weeks compared to the reason why they want to continue at the end of their eight weeks may be totally different. So at the start, they might have joined up thinking, I want to be a fighter. Eight weeks later, they might have sparred a few times and they might think, whoa, do you know what? I love the training, but I don't know. this sparring is not for me. I don't want to be a fighter. So then we have different routes we can push them down. We can keep them on like um, the combat athlete program where they're doing more advanced techniques and drilling, but they're not sparring. They don't have to spar. Unless someone wants to be a fighter, what is the point in them doing five, five five-minute rounds of sparring every week and going away with all them injuries and all that fatigue and stuff so we can push them down that route? If they are still of that mindset, yes, I want to be a fighter, the next thing is looking back on that eight-week training period that we've just had and seeing – what worked for them, what didn't, what suits their body set, but, uh, their body type, what suits their game, what do they actually enjoy most, what are they best at. So if, for instance, someone is an absolute killer on the feet and he loves it, I'm not going to turn around to that guy and say, well, you need to work on your ground game more than and just do what, you know, yeah. you're already a good striker. No, I'm going to say to him, right, I want to see you on Paul Webb's tie boxing classes two nights a week and I want to see you on, um, on, on Oggy's boxing classes. I want you to really sharpen that skill that you love. But at the same time, you're going to have to work on your ground game. So I'd like to see you on two BJJ classes and we'll keep keep you on the competition team. And Do you get what I mean? Yeah. And we can kind of make it specific to that person and walks it around for him. Um, the, the best way, though, the best way that I, that I like to do things for people who are totally beginners and they've done no martial arts before, I'd like to introduce them through BJJ. I think it's the one that's going to have the most bang for the buck. It's going to give them the most functional skills that they can use straight away, so they can do our our BJJ intro course, and straight away they're going to be able to hold their own with ninety percent of the world in a in a street fight altercation, and they're going to be able to hold their own with most people on, on an MMA mat in the in like most beginners in an MMA mat in the terms that they know how to grab someone get hold of them and control them if they're in, in a bad position whereas mm-hmm. if they've never if they've never done the bJj intro course and they're in a point where someone's lighting them up on the feet and they don't know how to get hold of in control and take him down and, and, and get a bit of a rest that can be a very dangerous position to be in when you when you're in the cage and you've got people you know trying to spy so personally I like people to do the bJJ intro course I like him to finish that then progress onto the MMA intro course because the skills transfer over and then the intensity level increases slightly because it's MMA and not BJJ and then after that I like him to develop the programme do I want to be a comp? some of them might say you know what I tried the MMA intro course but I really love the BJJ I'm going to stick with BJJ and I'm like brilliant excellent we've got another bit, another BJJ guy on our team he's yeah. going to be another good training partner he knows a bit about MMA because he's done it a little bit and uh yeah, that, that that that's like the, the the way I like to push people down the roots. There's there,
0: there's so many aspects to MMA, isn't there? It's unbelievable. That, yeah. Um I
1: think there is no one answer fits all there is no cutie cookie, cookie cutter programme. It has to be kind of personalized. Yeah. Um and when I've, I've trained a few
0: um amateur MMA, obviously S and C coach, um, and I love training MMA fighters but my, my, my next question is kind of like because there's so many facets to MMA to learn and to know keep up, asked, yeah. to keep on yeah. top of where does your S&C kind of fall in and for not so much your newbies but more like your top level amateurs your professionals how are they kind of like dispersing their time because there's only so many hours in a day only so many weeks your body is getting absolutely battered where did, do you see snc as, you know
1: you, you need to do this and, and kind of what, what's your thoughts on that right so briefly i'll answer the question you asked me not to Good question. Uh, beginners and stuff so the the ones when you said not beginners you're talking about athletes i'll just briefly touch on beginners for a second though okay for me any beginners that are coming in to do MMA or BJJ or whatever they do, the number one priority is that you, they enjoy what they're doing. That's the number one priority. So <laughs> if they come in and I'm, as a coach, telling them, you've got to do this, that, and the other, X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. You can't do this. You shouldn't do that. Blah, blah, blah. That's going to rob their enjoyment of it and their experience is going to be not as good. So as a, when a beginner comes in, and, and as they do, they've got tons of questions. What should I be doing for strength and conditioning? What should I be doing this? What should I be doing that? Who should I be... Should I be doing this or that? As a beginner, my ad- advice is simply just do whatever you enjoy as long as it doesn't get you injured. Yeah. So if, you, if you're doing BJJ twice a week and you're doing CrossFit twice a week, if it's getting you a bit fitter and you're enjoying it, keep doing it. Simple as that. I don't, you don't need to be doing scientifically proven this or that. It doesn't need. You, you don't need to be following the new FAD training program that all the cool yeah, BTs yeah. are doing. Yeah. You, don't need to be, you just need to be doing something that's safe, that's getting you fit. Doesn't you know? Doesn't need to be athlete fit. It's just getting you a bit fitter than you were yesterday. And you need to be enjoying it. That's it. As a beginner, just do that. Yeah, enjoy it. Crack on. As a fighter, there's a lot of facets that that fit into it. Like you said, as you know, as, as a professional fighter or as a top end amateur. All I say, what I say is on the strength and conditioning is. Do your research. On, on who you're going to get. So I I was a PTI in the Marines. Then I went on and did the RI course, which mm-hmm. for those that don't know, it gives you quite a high degree of knowledge in physiology and, and, and anything to do with the body, basically. It's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like a, the military version of a physio, um, an exercise-based physio. So I, I made the mistake of for quite a few years programming for myself doing my own strength and conditioning and all that ended up was I was burning myself out week in, week out because it was always I want to push myself harder and further and faster and more and blah, blah, blah. So I just burned myself out week in, week out. So what I would say is do your research on who you're going to get to coach you. Mm-hmm. By research, I don't mean ask them what they do because if you ask them what they do, they're going to tell you they're the best at what they do because what they do, they, they believe in it and they, and they should do. You know, otherwise they'd be a hypocrite. But do your own research, look into what they do, look into their mindsets and their, their methods and see does it, does it align with your mindset and your culture and what you know, your methods are or, or what your view on being coached is and stuff like that. Then bear in mind that there's a, there's a difference between fitness and conditioning. Mm -hmm. So, like, fitness is the things we can measure, like your VO2 max, your your, your strength, your power, your this, your that. Your conditioning is how well you can transfer that to your sport, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And that comes down to a lot of things. The, the The number one thing I'll speak about here is that comes down to you cannot, no matter how fit, how strong or how powerful you are, you will not be able to transfer that to your sport if you're not recovered in time, if you're constantly fried from training and you're you're, you're working with a coach that's just goosing you every day, gassing you till your eyeballs bleed every day, you have got zero chance that that's going to benefit you in your your MMA training because your nervous system's going to be fucked, your your musculoskeletal system's going to be fried, everything's going to be fried and all that's going to happen is you're going to become a really good CrossFit athlete or a really good strength and conditioning guy and your MMA skills are going to take a big hit. Yeah. So you need to make sure you've got a coach that understands what it is you're doing in MMA, what the movements, the body, the biomechanics of the stuff that you're doing, the energy systems that you use, the amount of fatigue that you're accruing during your training sessions, the amount of recovery it takes to recover from that fatigue. You need to get a conditioning coach that understands all of that Um I'm without giving a a, a a plug here but you know, I, I work with Mike Wheatman and, and, and for me he's excellent he's a BJJ blue belt um, he's, he, he, he trains BJJ four or five days a week he works with a lot of wrestlers and BJJ guys he understands the sport he understands what the movements are what the energy systems are what mobility requirements stuff like that he understands when, when to push guys far or when to hold them back and he understands my next point which is anything you're doing in the strength and conditioning realm has got to be to, it's got to have the aim of improving what you do on the mats yeah if you're doing strength and conditioning for the sake of being the strongest you're not doing it it's got nothing to do with your mma you know yeah. i have got nowhere near the, the 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 strength on a deadlift that some of the guys in my gym have got and they're not pro athletes and they might look at me and go well i can lift twice what he can he's a pro athlete but but my strength of conditioning is not to get me be the strongest in the gym. It's to get me to do the most functional movements, that, that buzzword, functional. You know, yeah, the, yeah. Mo- the movements are, are the, the things that have got the most carryover. crossover, carryover transfer to my sport while not fatiguing me to a level that, that's going to leave me fucked or fried or whatever. You know. So um, research yeah. your coach, make sure his values are aligned with, what, with your values and make sure he knows a bit about the sport and what you're doing in your strength and conditioning training, you can feel that it's having a direct positive improvement on what you're doing on the match. If you're feeling tired after it, you're feeling exhausted, and you're getting on the match, you're crawling on the match stiff, that you should that's not that's not productive, that's not moving, that's probably holding you back rather than holding you forward. The only
0: thing I find that's uh you know about Wheatman. I mean, he was a para. Come on, mate. Yeah, I mean,
1: <laughs> it is one thing, and it is a well-known fact that paras don't shower. So before we train together, I do make him take a quick shower, and i lend him my shower gel, just in case he hadn't got his own.
0: <laughs> I, thought, you know, I thought he'd just try and get you milling, and that's it.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we do. We do, we do four hours of milling twice a week, yeah. and uh, that's it. <laughs> that's it, yeah.
0: No, uh, no, it's a good one. You've got a, you've definitely got a good one there, so yeah. Obviously, yeah, Mike Wheatman was on the podcast, he's on my second one. Um, so yeah,
1: cracking. Well, c- I mean, again, so just touching on that, and again, I don't want to make this like a, a plug for my, my strength and coach, but I'm just telling the truth. I'll just, just edit about, it out, don't worry. Yeah, I'm just telling you a bit about my experience, so it's not a plug or anything like that, but you know, it's just a bit about my experience, but before I started working with Mike I did exactly that I looked his Instagram page up I looked up all the stuff he was was training BJJ I knew I knew him from around the SPG gyms and he comes training at at the time he was training at my gym he's been coming over for a while maybe once a week or once every two weeks or whatever he he trains with us maybe once or twice a week now but um, so I knew he knew something about the sport I looked him up on his Instagram and his website and stuff and looked at the training he was doing and not just the training he was doing, but I actually read the way he was doing it and the way he was implementing it and stuff like that. And when I actually got in contact with him about, see, I made this mistake before with with, with people is I, I've, I've got in contact with strength and conditioning coaches and I've told them my background was in that I'm a PTI and I was an RI and I've got this strength and conditioning wall and this, that and the other. and What I did that wrongly in times because then, they they kind of looked at me as if I, I was maybe on the peer group, mm. if you get what I mean, and, and maybe didn't treat me as a as a as an athlete. Or, but basically, I want to turn up to a strength and conditioning coach, and I want him to treat me like I'm a day one beginner idiot who knows nothing, and I want him to say, "This is the plan. This is what you're doing. My job's to coach you. Your job's to execute. And that's it." I don't want it to be where it's a back and forth where I'm giving a bit, yeah, I do this and I, I know this and where, you know, where it becomes me trying to tell him what I already know because that, that doesn't benefit me or them. So when I got into in contact with my uh, with, with Mike Weedman, I, I, did, I didn't tell him that I was a PTI or that I was an RI or I had strength and conditioning qualifications and stuff. I just told him what I wanted out of the sessions. I wanted to become a better athlete and all that. And I just let him go for it and then it, it it's worked out really well because my I'm asking him to make me a better athlete. I'm not asking him to know about that my what what I've done in my past or what, whatever. Yeah, it's irrelevant. So I, I ju- he just gets some of the coaching, the programming, and telling me what to do. I get on with the execution and getting it done, and I feel that's the simplest, most effective way of doing it.
0: Yeah, it's awesome, and it's understanding like because now you know we're not getting on. It's it's about prolonging your career as long as possible yeah. and well I'm it,
1: 37 you know and
0: yeah.
1: the, the thing is for me is I, I'm not you know I'm, I wasn't born yesterday I'm not stupid I know I haven't got a long time left in this sport and and nor I don't want a long time in this sport as, a, as an athlete competing anymore I've got you know I've, I've got a handful of fights left and I've got a few things that I want to achieve in them fights but I haven't got another five years, ten years in the sport, I don't want another five years or ten years, I want to, I want my training to, to get me to the level in the, as an athlete that I want, but I want it to give me longevity for when I'm purely focused on coaching and improving, I don't want to, I don't want to finish this as a broken athlete yeah. that can't coach, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: What, as a coach, one of the things I pride myself is on is always getting on the mats with the lads you know, and doing. I want to, when I'm 50 years old, I want to be able to jump on and do 10 rounds with the lads. If you look at all the S.P.G. If you look at S.P.G. coaches all around the world, that ethos is everywhere. There's coaches all over the world in the S.P.G. community, and the late 40s, early 50s. even Some of them late 50s, and they still get on the mats and do 10 rounds with the lads five nights a week. Mm-hmm because they understand how to train safely and they, and they train in a manner that's giving them longevity rather than all intensity. Uh, so that, and that's something that I've kind of worked out over the years. It took a long time.
0: Yeah, and, and knowing the stuff that Wheats does, part of it is active recovery, isn't it? It's about yeah. prolonging the joints, making sure you're nice and healthy. And
1: that's the bit that, as an MMA fighter, you don't want to do because it's, it's, the, it's the bit that's not very exciting. Hitting pads is exciting, sparring is exciting, grappling is exciting. You know, smashing your time on a wad is exciting. (laughs) Doing mobility and and flexibility, it's not exciting as an MMA fighter. So you need a coach that's going to make it exciting or make it relatable to you so you understand why you're doing it and you see the benefits rather than just, we're doing flexibility. You know, you need to understand why you're doing it. And, yeah, I think that's a skill that a, a coach needs.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, just to kind of like take us to the end, like your last fight, um, or the fight that never was—the fight that never never turned up. Yeah. Um, obviously I followed it. I've I've been chatting to Wheat and seeing how you're getting on throughout camp. Um, and then I me- I messaged him that morning. I said good luck to you and to him. Obviously, I've been part of it. And then a couple hours later, I'm checking, and it's like. Oh, mate! Like, how did you deal with that? It's out of your control completely.
1: Yeah. Uh. Well. Well. So. Again, shameless plug, but I I work with a a, a mindset coach called Dave Mullins who has completely changed my life. He's he's made me, just working with him, as. It's allowed me to learn the lessons from the stuff I've done in the past. Uh, so I, I had all this experience in my life that I've done, but I didn't know how to draw them experiences out and, and uh, as lessons, do you get what I mean? So working with uh, working with Dave Mullins has, has really helped me doing that. One of the first things we worked on was controllables and non-controllables, and um, only focusing your energy on the things that you can control, and not worrying about the things that you can't, because what's the fucking point? You can't control them. What's what's the point of wasting energy? So when my opponent pulled out on uh, on the day of the fight, about four hours before the fight, <clears throat> the first thing that's going through my mind is obviously all the training that I've gone through is wasted. I've you know, I've trained my bollocks off for this and this guy's pulling out and blah blah blah. Then you start to think about shit, what about all my supporters that have bought tickets and they come into the fight? I had boot driving from all over the country. Jules Marin drove from London to come over Jules Marin flew, flew to California to watch me fight. Do you know what I mean? And and he, he drives Every fight I'm at, he, he, wherever it is in the world, Jules is there. And I've got a load of boot net mates that are the same. Mm. Um, and Middleton was on his way up. Uh, Greg was on his way up. Uh, Glyn was on his way up. We, mate, All that pressure's in And I'm thinking, all my mates that are on the way up here to watch me fight. And now I'm letting them, I felt like I was letting them down. Yeah. Um, for the first hour or so, or a couple of hours, that that's what was going through my mind. You know, that's what was going, you know, and then then it's when I started to draw the lessons out and hang about wait a minute wait a minute what is it I'm always telling people don't focus on the non-controllables this isn't my fault I've not I've got any control over this this is someone else's fault Uh, whether it's a fault or whether it's just a mishap who cares? it's happened deal with it I can't control it let's just focus on the things I could control so then I just after about an hour or two I just got a grip on myself I think you're allowed an hour or two sulking when you've had a training camp like that you know (laughs) So after an hour or two, I just got my shit together, um, and uh, I just started focusing on the things I can control. Like, got to the fight show, got upstairs Thursday with all the lads, got in the locker room, and started helping the other lads warm up. So being there for my teammates, and then I started to get out and about, in you know, in the crowd, in the in the thing, because there was about three thousand, four thousand people there. So I just started to get out and about and see all my supporters and all that, chat to them. So I thought, you know, one thing I can control is actually going communicating with my supporters rather than hiding away in the changing rooms all night. I can go and speak to my mates and the people that come to see me. Um, so I did that, and it made me feel a lot better because they were obviously supportive and saying, well, it's not your fault. And that made me feel a lot better then. And then by the time the night was over, us as a group, as SBG UK, we had a good night. We had a lot of successful fights. Uh, one of my fighters, Kyron Sturrock, he had a great performance. Um, he ultimately lost the fight because he got caught in a choke. But well, it he, he was his 18-year-old. It was his pro debut on Cage Warriors, which is a huge yeah. amount of pressure. Yeah. Huge amount of pressure in Manchester, the first Cage Warriors Manchester, and he got to put his pro debut on, on there. And even though we lost the fight, it was a successful fight for him because he, he showed what skills he's got, and he's got. A, there's a lot of lessons that he can learn for that going, for going forward. So it was a successful night, all in all. So then, obviously, moving forward from that, it was just, I'm over it now. Let's move forward. That was the mindset. Yeah. Going forward.
0: Um, one thing I've kind of, like, started to learn, the more I'm getting into, like, stoicism and, and this type of stuff is, and it, it's similar to what you just said, but when I first heard of it and when I was first listening, I was thinking, it's, it's called the art of surrender and getting yeah. good at surrendering. And to a bootneck, to a fighter, you don't surrender. But learning about just surrendering to the things that you have no control over and just yeah, exactly, realizing yes. that, yeah then let it go and then you did exactly that and then what can you control okay bang i'm gonna go out i'm gonna see my mates blah blah blah
1: so the first kind of experience i had of stoicism was reading a tattoo on my one of my best friends back ian butlin who was also one of the, he's a legend of UK MMA. For those mm. that don't know him, look him up. Ian M16 Butlin. Uh, he's one of the first UK MMA fighters. He's one of the first guys to start a gym. Uh, he now he does all the broadcasts for like M1 Global and stuff like that. He's he's a legend. Anyway, he's got a tattoo on his back, and it says, um, "He who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave." Yeah. And um, when I first read that. I seen it on his back and I was a young lad and I'm thinking what the fuck's that all about? He has learned how to die as unlearned how to be a slave. <laughs> see, it's that bullshit. You know, I was in the Marines yeah, and I, it, it just stuck in my mind and I kept trying to work out what he was on about with it. And I was thinking, what, what is that? You know, every time I see this title, what is that title about? And it took me a while to get onto it and then it, it got, I got onto the fact that it's what you're talking about. Though. It's the surrender into the things you have no control over. And he, you know, he's just making the point that if, you're going to die at some point, accept it, surrender to it, get over it. And then it gives you the freedom to go and know that the rest of your life, you should be out there enjoying Because if you're not, you you know, you're living a life. Yeah. Um, And that was my first experience of stoicism.
0: That's um, nice. The more I get into it, the more I realize like how it kind of resonates with, I think people from our backgrounds and, um, especially in the yeah. military and and just how I wish I found it earlier,
1: really. Yeah, I me, mean,
0: yeah, yeah. One of them, yeah. go, don't worry about it. Just keep learning about the new stuff and yeah, exactly. And cracking on. Um, yeah, states, mate. I just want to wrap it up, mate, and just thank you for your time. Um, it's been absolutely. Mate, thank pleasure. you for the show. It's been a pleasure having you on, mate. And um, just so if anybody doesn't know where to find you, what's your kind of Instagram handle and
1: where can they find uh, So. On Instagram, I'm Stapes underscore fifty cal. Yeah. Or Stapes 50 Cal, something like that. You'll, you'll pop Stapes fifty <laughs> and you'll find it. Uh and then my my gym is SBG Rochdale. If you wanna look up SBG Rochdale and see what we do at training or anything like that, uh, yeah, look us up. And uh, we've actually got a new website launching in the next week or so. So that's gonna be SPGrochdale.co.uk. If anyone wants to have a look at that, it's gonna be a pretty cool website. Uh and it's made by one of our team team members, Mav Blue Belt and JC He's actually developing the site for us. Like everything we do at SBG, it's it's always one of the tribe members helping us out do it. And I don't even have to ask, it, it's just the fact he messaged me and says, Bro, do you need an help with this? And I'm like, Yeah, I do, thank you. But that's what we're all about. So um uh, have a look at the website as well, guys. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I'll uh, I'll link them onto the um description below, but um I might give you a shout for your website developer because we need a new one for the gym. So, <laughs>
1: hey, I don't want to I don't want uh, to throw his name in that. He's not actually a website developer. He's a tattoo <laughs> artist. It's just that he's uh, he's just really good at it. Really, really artistically, and he's got such an imaginative mind that he's making a cool website for us. Uh, so I don't I don't I don't want to get I don't want to get him in the shit there. But uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> all right, class. Um, mate, I wish you all the, all the best. Um, obviously, when when we when we start back out of lockdown and um, the future of your fighters and obviously yourself the rest of your career mate good luck with it all
1: and um, stay, I'll stay in touch same goes man thank you very much thanks for the call I've enjoyed it no
0: worries mate thank you very much take See care bye bye